everyone and welcome to episode 5 of Diversity in Making. Diversity in Making is a collaboration between the Purdue Libraries and School of Information Studies and the Asian American and Asian Resource and Cultural Center, also known as the ARC. My name is Pam Sari and I'm the director of the ARC. And my name is Sarah Huber and I'm an assistant professor in the Purdue Libraries. For this month's episode, we are fortunate to have the audiovisual artist art collaborators Esteban Garcia Bravo and Aaron Zarnak joining us. Esteban is an associate professor at Purdue in the Computer Graphics Technology Program. He researches and specializes in computer art history and digital media art practices. Aaron is the owner of the graphic design business Mine Us, where he runs the entire process of designing the artwork preparing proofs, setting up the press, and producing the work. Esteban's visual art and Aaron's sound art combine to play with relationships between light, color, shapes, and sound. It utilizes computing and technology with different mediums, such as wood, fiberglass, and textiles, to name just a few. Viewers are often invited to interact with their installations. An example of their work includes Bodygraph, where dancers were connected to sensors that directed graphics and sound technology. The dancers created an entire visual and audio performance through their movements. Thank you for being with us today, Esteban and Aaron. We are excited to learn more about your work. Yeah, thanks for having us. Yeah, thank you so much for inviting. All right, so first question, can you tell us about the work you do and how you two met? And as a follow-up to that, can you talk about your work dynamic? Who focuses on what and how does that inspire the other? Do you want to, do you want to start with how we met? Or because we have, I guess, like every, we have like two versions. I mean, we um, I, I arrived to uh, Lafayette in 2005 and I was uh, doing video work uh, back in Colombia. And I was trying to connect with like minded people here in here at Purdue. And there was really not nobody uh, doing, you know, visuals for uh, live performance. I was very interested on electronic music scene. And during my first six months, I met Chris Tolliver, who is a musician also here in, in, in Lafayette. And through his network of friends, we booked this first show on Main Street on an empty storefront for uh, a radio station that I was starting. And and that's when I first met Aaron. Uh, he was one of the artists that Chris Tolliver invited. Yeah, I think we, we met and had coffee at Knickerbocker. It was like the, not Knickerbocker, uh, what's the Java Roaster? Java Roaster. Yeah, our first time. Yeah. Just meeting. <laughs> and I, I met I met Aaron and I immediately thought I wanna be your I wanna be your friend <laughs> forever. <laughs> uh, there was like so many things in common with you know his interests uh, in music and the way that he was using uh, the technology that you were using back then was re- relatively simple, like you were using guitar pedals. But you were producing very uh, interesting, abrasive techno, I would I would say. Yeah, there's the drum machine and guitar pedals, because there wasn't really a lot going on in that style either. So finding Esteban and it kind of like the show that he set up kind of built this new network of like a new kind of like electronic arts that wasn't really happening at all in so, the town. So we started doing a lot of these shows here, like... It was really busy. Uh, I mean, I, I, we were just going back into our calendars and, you know, we would sometimes have 
you know, two or three shows a month or even on a week. And this is while I was doing my graduate studies uh, in the art department. So we became roommates like a year after I moved here. And I think that that really enhanced our collaboration. I think one of your questions was how do we feed off each other's work? And I think that um, we just spend so much time together, living together, that the boundaries of, you know, like I would be making a drawing while Aaron was practicing his sound. So it already kind of became the soundtrack of, of my art. And I think, I don't know. And, and that's, Esteban was running a, a radio station out of our apartment. So we were making mixes. So you were, you were handling audio on that side. I'd only been screen printing on my own for a couple of years. So I was kind of picking his brain as an artist. So I was, you know, getting, you know, artist tips and he's running the radio station and kind of like everything we were doing was just one thing. It felt like. Yeah. Very, very solid. And uh, the venue that we used to perform a lot was called downtown records. Uh, it is right next to McCord's. And right now it's just like empty again, but we used to perform there all the time. And then we lived across the street. So it was very convenient. And then we, I mean, I think that we were focused a lot on party playing. I think that at that point we were taking things very living the moment and like not really thinking about like creating a portfolio or anything like that. But we got to do some interesting travels across the United States, uh, going to very strange houses and playing house shows yeah. in Chicago, Chicago and Boston and Philadelphia. Yeah. One thing I'm kind of fascinated with Lafayette as a transplant, Aaron, are you from here? Yes. Okay. Yeah. I'm a townie. I'm really interested in this artist scene of locals. I mean, there's just some really cool stuff. So when you were doing your music, were you having to travel other places or were you just doing your own thing here and just kind of like move over, you know, make some space for me. I'm going to do this thing. Yeah. I was I, like right before I met Esteban is when I was starting to play out and experiment with what I was doing. Cause nobody was, there wasn't really anything happening like that. Like I played an open mic night at gray house with a drum machine and pedals. And it was like, it just like, was not supposed to be happening there. It, it was like very strange and it was kind of, yeah, it's like you're saying, I was just like, I had to just be like, this is something I'm, I feel like I need to do. I, I'm chasing it. So basically, but right around when we met, when the downtown records happened, that's when a lot of people met all at the same time and it kind of just exploded. It does seem like there was like, when I hear people talk about the music scene, there was like this moment in time where a lot happened. Yeah, and strangely, I, I kind of, tie it to like it was right around the time of myspace and i think myspace really leveled the playing field out because anybody could put up music and if it was good you'd get plays and it mm -hmm. i think that really helped put kind of everybody on the on an even playing field even in a small town so and you could take it as like more of like oh this is a real thing like i'm i'm actually like reaching people outside of my city so yeah, so, so like booking, a lot of the shows were booked via MySpace. So <clears throat> I remember a time where Dan Deacon was supposed to be coming here. And <clears throat> I don't know what happened, but we made a flyer for it. Like Dan Deacon and... Dan Deacon? They're from Baltimore. They have this like huge, like 
art collective. There's a whole scene based around this art collective and they were going to play in Lafayette. It was like, it fits so much with what we were doing. Yeah. We were like so excited that they were coming and then it, it didn't happen, but, but things that, like that did happen. I mean, we got to meet like some really interesting bands that were just passing through because our friends were booking shows and they would stay at our place actually, because we had, yeah. The, we live at the Lara Apartments, so we we were hosting a lot of these bands. We kind of like led to our eviction <laughs> uh, very quickly. Uh, so we started with, well, I remember like we, we did uh, Party Criminals after that, which was about getting evicted and trying to raise money to <laughs> pay for the court fees. <laughs> um, but but I think I think that that for us, like, it was kind of like a new beginning to, you know, start kind of like taking our work more seriously and trying to find venues for make maybe like more permanent things that just for the party. Like we, I mean, years kind of like passed by. So we, I guess, wanted to do something more, more permanent. How many years has it been? Like, I mean, 2006 or something. Yeah, that was 2006. To 2007, and then we we continued like playing locally, and then Downtown Records went out of business, uh, and then all that kind of like moved moved to the Black Sparrow. So the Black Sparrow used to have like many many shows, and Paul Baldwin kind of like became like our sort of like a mentor of the things that we were doing. I think of him as a businessman in town. So can you explain how he was an influence on your guys' work? You know, when, when the Black Sparrow started, he really jumped in to, you know, support our, our music and support our audiovisual work. So when there were shows available, uh, he wanted us to do those shows there. And like, he was like the first time that we got paid in town. Like he was actually very cool about that like like making sure that like if we were organizing these events that he made sure that we were treated like very respectful of uh, the artists valuing what we were doing uh, later when he started the foam city project which you know was a uh, co-working space for artists we had a deal with him where we were trading uh, artwork for a studio rent and things like that so so he, at his heart, like he really wanted to make this town better and try to support the artists as much as he could. And I, I didn't, I just didn't know the, the background of Black Sparrow. I've only known it as the restaurant, but I think of the spot, all the art that's there and the music it brings and the artists that gather there. It's unique to this town. So, so, so the Sparrow used to be this fall crowd, essentially, like. And then once this, when Foam City ended, all those shows um, started transitioning to to the spot. But I mean, the spot is is the afterthought of Foam City. But but I, I think I think that that the the what happened it was the progression of projects or establishments that supported artists first, like with the Black Sparrow. And then foam city and then moving all that to to the spot why like that people around the midwest love paul is because like they they basically get treated like you do in europe where 
you come to play a town, you get paid, you get food and you have a place to stay. And they're, they say like, that just doesn't happen in the States. And, and to find this place, like one stop after Chicago and you just completely get taken care of, like people come back three or four times all remember each other and hang out. It was, it was a really special time. Yeah, I mean, it's been really good for for us uh, also as artists to to meet the touring artists, like touring bands. Like it's been extremely beneficial to us because that we have expanded our network by you know just just being there, being in this town, and it also gives us exposure outside of the of Indiana to, you know, have positive experiences uh, with bands from all over the world. What, what was this radio station? Yeah, it was, it was uh, something that I was doing for, for my MFA and, but it was a pirate radio station running from downtown. So I had a radio transmitter that covered one mile radius. I was using a, a transmitter from a collective in Chicago called Temporary Services. And um, it was basically this portable machine. So a lot of it was trying to give this message of freedom and empower the Lafayette community to become creators. So I really, you know, wanted all this great music that was coming out of Lafayette to become a community and become known. They had like a like like a local component, but everything that was playing in the radio live was also being broadcasted on the internet. So you had like this this idea of of local which is which was yeah just sharing local creations globally how much of it was influenced by previous perhaps live music scene in colombia or even your identity oh yeah absolutely i i it was it was very influenced because as i said i came here and i was doing that kind of work there so i i was i was i worked in a in a collective um that on Fridays, it had a radio station. So, you know, I really liked my interaction with musicians and we didn't, it didn't have a visual component, but I was like the person doing the flyers for the events. And I just really liked potential of collaborating with musicians for my visual art. So when I moved here, I felt like a little bit at loss because I thought, I don't know anybody. I, I need to find the musicians here. So, so yeah, it did, it did influence like that electronic scene. And I, I kind of wanted to bring that here, or I guess like we need to connect with people that were doing that or were interested on in doing something like that here. And that is, that leads us right into our next question. Erin, can you talk about the background that led you to your work with soundscapes? Is, is soundscapes the right word? What would you call your work? Yeah. Um, I mean, I'm always like trying to reach doing more just soundscapes because yeah, I did start with really like techno and stuff that was really synchronized and everything. And yeah, I would say I have been trying to find a soundscape outlet. I basically just like decided to stop using drum beats at some point. I think after we, our shows slowed down. So I was using a sampler and just taking any sounds I could record and then kind of like, collaging them together and stretching them out and making them work together, uh, doing some like circuit bending and recording those sounds and, and realizing that, you know, sound was malleable and I could 
kind of make whatever I wanted out of it. Probably around that time, I got into uh, Brian Eno and his like ambient music, which led me to learn about FM synthesis. And then I, I went into like, I wanted to learn how to program FM synthesizers because it's all computerized. You were doing something different in this town and we're just curious how you got there. Like, what was it that put you on that path, that direction? Uh, to, to to do, yeah, to do the, the stuff on my own. I mean, I was playing like in bands and playing guitar. It's funny, before I met Esteban at Purdue, I was in a death metal band right out of high school and our guitar player was a Purdue student from India and he taught me how to completely shred on guitar his name is uh, Prashant Shaw. He lives in India again now, and he's like a pretty big in like the death metal scene over there. But yeah, like, so I learned to play guitar with him and we had a pretty solid band. Like that was right after high school and that's what kind of launched me into making music. And that kind of like all fell apart a couple of years after being in bands is pretty tough relationship. So that's when I just was going solo and I was like, I have all this equipment and I kind of steered away from guitar but still using like the effects and the all the equipment i had for completely experimenting all on my own and trying to find other things that were similar because i was i feel like early 2000s there was all kinds of weird experimental noise music happening in midwest and just finding it all and experimenting Esteban, you introduced me to aldo giorgini is that how you pronounce it okay yeah giorgini um, can you tell us a little about a little bit about his work at Purdue and how he's influenced your work, if he influences your collaborative work? Oh, I mean, he he influenced my visual work tremendously because. But I guess I, I'll tell you first about who he was. He was a professor uh, in the civil engineering department. He got here at Purdue on uh, 1968, I believe. Yeah, 68. 60, 67 or something like that. And he was uh, one of the first people in the world using computers to create images. So, you know, he came from uh, the National Center for Atmospheric Research in Colorado. And he came straight here and he started using the produce mainframe to create computations of uh, fluid mechanics and he had been uh, kind of like an arts enthusiast when he was a kid he was a war refugee in ethiopia during the second world war so he he was the apprentice for an artist i was very interested on on what he did because uh, at some point he realized that two things connected like his interest for painting and his work as a researcher in fluid mechanics. So he started making art out of his visualizations that he was making. And this is kind of taking into consideration that it was a moment where there were no screens. So he was just basically plotting things out and, and all these things that he would, you know, he had like an ability to create some very complex visualizations. Uh, one of them is one of the, in the civil engineering labs, it's kind of like a simulation of different light sources. But what, what was really beautiful about knowing about his work is that I spent two years just going to his basement. Like he, he died in 94. 
So his garage uh, and his basement had been untouched for, you know, 20 years. Uh, so I got to really see firsthand and unpack, you know, with access of from, you know, his son, uh, Maz Giorgini, who happens to also be, have a connection with the music scene. He granted me access and I found all his manuscripts and I found like all the artwork and all the time that he spent painting and the type of work that he made was uh, sort of like optical very you know it was it was it was optical but it was also computational so it had like something that you know um it was it was very interesting for me because I came from a school that art had to be conceptual all the time. Art always had to be about saving the children or, you know, like, I mean, that's that's great. Like, I, I, I love that and I do wanna save the children, but, but I like that his art was free from that. Like, he was a good person. Like, I could see that from the letters that he received. Like, he had fan mail and his students love him and like, you know, he was doing good in his daily life, but he didn't have to make his art be like that. He could make his art be free, give another, a different type of message, the message of uh, the peace that he could give you to like see one of his works. You know, I think that was, that was like a better gift. So you kind of like, it framed, framed, it was, it shift my frame on how I produce my own art because then I didn't have to make my things conceptual. Like they could just be pretty or they could just be cathartic, optical, colorful, and not really necessarily have to mean anything. I was just a quick thought. I, I just saw this quote from Nina Simone and then a quote from Chick Corea. And Chick Corea, the jazz fusionist that recently passed away, and he was like, the only thing an artist needs to do is just express their heart. They just need to go to their heart and whatever that is, you know? And then Nina Simone, she's like, the, the duty of an artist is to reflect the times, which I think is speaking to a little bit what you're saying. Like, I just need to be myself and express what's in my heart or what's true to me versus what I feel I'm supposed to do. Yeah. And that becomes like the most anti-establishment thing to do is to express your heart and express your feelings. And, and seeing Aldo's work, I really could feel that it was very heartfelt because of all the hours that he spent like painting by hand, they were computational things, but, but he painted them by hand. So it was kind of like that, that feeling I could feel like all the emotions and it was about himself. You know, a lot of the titles were, you know, there was one called uh, Turbulent Communication. So it was like very like reflecting things about his own feelings. And I thought, wow, that's, that's, it was very inspiring for me. Yeah, you're right. You don't like it's like we don't want to think about computation or numbers and art together. And I also think that when I think about data visualization today, right, it's it's a it's a storytelling too. So using um, it's it's an art of curation also to make data 
perhaps more easier, easier to understand to a lot of people. And combining it with arts, I feel like it's another form of curation. How, how do you explain to your students when you, you know, you, this, this person um, inspired you? How do you also perhaps try to explain um, to students who are interested in both engineering, for example, and arts? Yeah, no, that's, that's, yeah, that's true. You know, I think, I think that they, they really need to think about aesthetics because, you know, we're naturally attracted to uh, beautiful images. So, so even if, you know, I, I think like things can be more communicative and if you can, if you can grab the attention of a person, you know, and, and I, and I think that people dismiss aesthetics as like something vain, but I see them, I see aesthetics as speaking to, to your subconscious, you know, like it is a speaking to, it is a speaking to like the laws that govern your perception, for example. So like, if I am really smart about the way I connect and combine these colors, I can make you look at this thing. So you can't like really like dismiss or uh, or like these shapes. Like if I make these shapes, you know, rounder or like the spaces between them, I mean, you can really communicate more about the story that you want to tell as opposed to, you know, uh, running everything through Excel or pre-made, pre-packaged tools for visualization where everything looks the same and then it stops communicating. I think that when I talk about data visualization in my classes, I encourage the students to like really be creative and try to engage the audience, you know, through 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 those like methods, like like colors and shapes and to not use the software necessarily to, to do that. So your collaborative work, Machine Aura, really interested in that. So emphasizes there's coding or visual element, and then there's the sound element. I like how you both seem to combine the rigidity of geometric shapes and then the fluidity of nature and even in the sound as well. Can you describe this word, Machine Aura, to the listeners, please? Yeah, um, I came up with a name uh, just because I was trying to, uh, I started using pure data for um, creating audio and so I was doing, starting to do coding and incorporating that into music. So it was like, I, I want this machine to kind of like generate the sounds. Um, I was using a lot of randomization to make the, the sound and the patterns. And um, so something about like, if I could program this enough, I mean, I wasn't fully thinking AI, but like kind of like give, give the computer where it was kind of in control of, of this thing. So, um, I was already starting to do that and we've we've always been making music and visuals together so it's like we decided to start kind of this new project of doing live streams and that was after covid started but yeah it was more about like putting more of the weight on on the the process and the creation using computers and then getting together and kind of just unleashing that and and, and more just like letting it kind of go where it wants to go you say giving it control. I'm just wondering if you could give us a little more information on that. Like, are you talking a little bit about like a, a, a feeling of letting go? Is it something you're, you're trying to release or is it something 
that you're putting on the machines or a little bit of both? For me personally, it kind of lines up with becoming a parent and having less time to um, just sit around and design sounds for hours, you know, spend like an entire Saturday making music. It's like, I've got to do this at night. How can I make this more efficient? And it's like, let's, let's build something that'll like reach into the, the sound designer and kind of make a, make my own sounds through, through programming, unless through like sitting there doing it. So yeah. Like designing the system. Yeah. And that way you can spend more time with, with your son. <laughs> yeah. And I've even, I've even set up sometimes where I'll just be playing and recording and I'm like, Oh, that sounds cool. So I'll like freeze it and let it kind of like record that whatever it's doing at that moment. I go, this is cool. And then, then let it keep going and go back to like playing with my kid. I get a sense of freedom from that freedom of time, but also like a release of, I don't have to control this in a certain way. I can let it do its thing. Exactly. And getting away from like making albums and things that are like finite, you know, it's like, I've got to work on this for six months and make it perfect. It's like, let's do something next weekend, do what we can using computers to help mm -hmm. with the process. So your project, Aurora Almanac, seems to exemplify the important connection between artists, local government, community partners, and funding agencies. Can you tell us about this project and what do you hope to contribute, especially for underrepresented communities? And why are you specifically drawn to the impact uh, for underrepresented communities? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I think, they, you know, I'm making these workshops, uh, reaching out to, you know, a diverse audience. Uh, it is a, a set of murals made out of tiles. And what I want is to encapsulate different identities. And, you know, so each tile is a design made by community members from Indiana. So I'm reaching out to different organizations in Bloomington and here in Lafayette to run these workshops where uh, people can find um, ways to represent themselves in a geometry form. So, you know, I in the workshop, I tell people things like, think about how you would uh, represent a feeling or a moment of transition or, you know, so I give examples of, you know, some people like to represent themselves uh, as a circle and then, you know, like kind of um, make people imagine how they would, could be represented or they could be portrayed in an abstract way and then kind of put that in, in a permanent place. So, you know, they're going to be able to come throughout the years and say like, oh, this is me on that particular moment. <clears throat> so we have about 216 tiles uh, that we need to design. I mean, there's different reasons that um, I do want to reach out to underrepresented uh, minorities. As a teacher, you know, seeing what's happening in the world, you know, it really makes you wonder, like, what can I do to, you know, help people and change, like, the economic, racial, and social divide that exists not only in this country, but in the world. One of the things that makes a huge difference is education and, more specifically, STEM. Like I do, you know, I'm, I'm an artist, but I, I think that it, there's a lesser of a chance for an underrepresented uh, minority to succeed in a STEM program, for example. And it's like, 
well, why is that? And, and like, I'm thinking, well, can I make programming more interesting? Can I make programming more approachable to uh, elementary school student? If I show it as like something creative, that is something easy that they can get involved with and that creative coding could be something that they can do and that is not boring. You know, it could it could really kind of like open like a new world to, uh, I, I think to anybody really that wants to be exposed to coding. I think it gets portrayed as something difficult cold and boring and hard and and that is not true at all like coding can be a lot of fun if it if you're exposed to it in the right way just made it interesting sounding to me (laughs) (laughs) i think what i like about that also sarah changing the deficit mindset right what what you said only certain people can succeed in stem fields into an asset asset mindset where if introduced in a, in a fun way that speaks to the heart that you spoke earlier, um, people can be successful in coding. This is, um, I was also smiling to Sarah because Sarah, that reminded me of our quilt project, except, you know, we work with material things, but also there's a, a piece of- There was some, I didn't do any of it, but there was some coding. <laughs> yeah, this, this is gonna be very much like a quilt. It's kind of like the similar, approach. Yeah, yeah. So piecing together. We did this, uh, we took archival photos and new photos of students at the ARC and they printed it on fabric. And then if it was new photos, they recorded it, you know, just through Camtasia. And then we programmed it into Arduino. So on the quilt accompanying a picture, you can press a button and it tells that story. But it's like, I am scared of the, the coding stuff, that part. I like the printing it on fabric and drawing on it and stuff like that, you know, but I love the end product. So I'd like to be more part of the process. Our next question is, what is your assessment of our public and campus art? So this is a question for both of you. How can Wright Purdue and Greater Lafayette public art speak to the contribution of our diverse uh, communities. I think that there's this there's this thought that there isn't a lot of going on, but I think I think that one of the things that I liked about being here is that maybe there isn't as much, so it makes it easier to become part of it and to be active and like to, you know, really to be, you know, be active in this arts community that I think is is uh, is very beautiful. I remember I was walking after what happened with George Floyd in Minneapolis. And I spent, I lived there for over 20 years and feeling disconnected. Like, I wish I was there. I wish I was at the memorial. And and I drove down, I can't remember which street it's on, but it was uh, there was a George Floyd memorial or um, mural in downtown Lafayette. And I was just like, man, there really is some cool stuff here. And it immediately made me feel connected yeah, I'm 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 completely 100% in debt with Lafayette for like making me the artist that I am now. Because I mean, organizations like Tipica New Arts Federation, like they put all the trust in us, and they've like given given us, you know, grants in several locations to develop, you know, ideas. Like like one of our 
um, audiovisual projects, uh, GEOD, started because the Tipica Noirs Federation like really trusted us with, because we only had like a really small, crazy mock-up, but having that support really helped us take our work to the next level and start doing public arts. What do you mean by GEOD? Can you explain what GEOD is? GEOD was, uh, or, or I think I think that, like, I think it marks our transition from doing uh, events to actually doing installations. So we did a series of geode, I think that was like the breaking point. I don't know if, if you agree. Yeah, that's when, cause we had, that's when we had the studio space and it was us and Max Carlson all contributing on a project that was more like to have a finished product and wasn't just about like a show or something. Is that that simple? Mm -hmm. So we created like a, like a sculpture that had video mapping um, so we did, we, we got this public arts grant to do uh, three different uh, shows in Tippecanoe County where we would do these public art interventions with sound, art and music. And, and it was, we, our first one was at the walking bridge uh, in 2016. And it was amazing. I mean, like we, I think that we promoted it a little bit, but it just, the, the walking bridge was full of people and people were like driving through the bridge and like they saw these like glowing structure and they were, they would like park, you know, yeah. or slow down as they were like uh, driving. It and was like, it was like the last Friday of the school year too. So like, everything was happening downtown that night and just the whole city was like buzzing with people so it was and we were in the center of the city so people were just seeing it from a distance and hearing it and coming to see what it is so it was the one that really had the most impact i think mm -hmm. it started out where i was like playing music and it was reactive and it was live and by the last installation the Potowski, is that? Mm -hmm. Like that's when it was, I programmed it and sent it with him and Max and it, it, it played music on its own and that triggered the visual. So it was, by the end it was, it was all self-contained, like uh, automated. Yeah. yeah. So that was definitely like, that was a project that was like where we figured our process out a lot. Mm -hmm. so, so yeah, so we developed our own software. Um, I had a graduate student uh, from Pakistan, uh, Isa Tariq. She developed a video mapping tool. Uh, I guess I, uh, under research in my department, I, I said, you know, I need you to develop a video mapping tool under these parameters. And she um, created sort of like a system where we could project to the specific geometry and also um, we, we use so an open source uh, software called Processing, uh, which was developed at MIT, and that's for the animations. And then on the sound side, we have different ways that we connect the audio to the animations. So the animations are data-driven. 
So it, it was the same yeah. square of visuals that was put on each pane of the geode. So the, the mapping would stretch it to each face that was on the geode. So it was the same visuals. So if each one's moving the same way, it made it look like the whole shape was, you know, like shimmering and stuff. Now it would be synced to the data from the sound. Yeah, so we are using the sound as the data that manipulates the animations. So we use, I mean, with processing, we use many different sound ways of connecting the sound. Like we use open sound control was the first one where we were sending the information uh, wirelessly. Bluetooth. We also use processing. We use Bluetooth. And we also use direct cable connection. Yeah. And then the last one is pure data, which is kind of like the one that uh, Aaron is going to teach us today in the workshop. Yeah. Also, with open, we connect that with open sound control as well. Yeah. Yep. That was. Yeah. The final thing was just the two computer programs just communicating. Yeah. That was the best one. But it's all open source. We gravitate around uh, open source platforms. Well, we have a final question. And I, I ask this because some kind of things you say at the edge, Esteban, but I'm curious, Aaron, if you have this perspective too, can you explain the personal reflection and spiritual aspects of your work? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, just with, I mean, mine is definitely like a, a personal escape and it provides peace for me to sit and, and generate these calming sounds also to be able to share it. And like, we put it up for streaming, like if, if people can find it on YouTube and put it on, if it, if it helps them, escape for, you know, even a few seconds to just kind of like, I don't know, I feel like our, the world is, is really hectic and you're just bombarded with information constantly from every angle. Yeah, if you can find a, a few minutes to reflect peacefully while you watch one of our streams, I think that's, you know, that would be a goal of mine and what we do. Your latest project, Machine Aura, like just how hypnotic it was. And even though it's it's um, a lot of visuals and sound, it is calming. Pam said it well, like this this juxtaposition of all these angles of, of geometric shapes with a lot of fluidity and nature, like that. those things seem to really connect in your work. Yeah, Esteban definitely has plenty of different layers in the visuals. Um, some stuff that's like hard coded, you know, like 3D objects, but then using video feedback and adding textures over the top of that. And then I'll, I'll look up and all of a sudden it's just like this ocean going on. And, and it's, it's, it's not really, it's not chaotic. It's definitely like really peaceful, like to see these things like swirling and it all like not completely by chance, but you know, that's stuff that happens in the moment when we're doing what we're doing together. Yeah, but I agree. Like your music really helps you be in the moment. Sometimes like silence is not enough. You need like something like that would really push you to the edge. And I think that the music that you make does that because it it kind of folds your senses. It just completely overwhelms you with all these waves. So you can really like, oh, this is a truly new experience so I can really be here because it's new 
So I think that that really helps you. Um, you know, it's not like pop where you know, like, okay, now it's the chorus. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And now there's probably yeah. this is now it's kind of like winding down. So it means that maybe it's the end. Like, no, this is really like a new experience. And there's a little bit where we, I don't know exactly what I'm going to do next too. So, or it's, it's also computer <laughs> yeah. influence too. So yeah. it's, yeah. It's, Sometimes the machine goes out of control and, and like, I, yeah, I mean, it's, it kind of like does its own thing. So it's kind of like trying to control yeah, you're, you're it. You're like again. balancing. Another quote I heard once, I can't remember who said it. Good music is original. You don't, you don't, you don't uh, expect what's coming next, but you recognize it. And I felt that with your music. It's original. I don't know what's coming next, but there's something in me that recognizes it. So that's what why you can fall into it. That at least that's my interpretation of it. It's like it's like identity too. I feel we, we you know in diversity in making, we talk about you know how identities, personal stories influence the way we make. For for me, it was I'm from originally from Indonesia, Esteban and Aaron. So I think my entry to soundscape is influenced um, by a lot of, in fact, government program to its his heritage, you know, sound, um, but also efforts to combat pollution and noise pollution as well, um, as you know, in big cities like Jakarta. So actually soundscape is used as one of the promotion <laughs> government efforts to to combat that. So do they like play like on speakers, like in kind of public stations or? Yes, um, public libraries, hmm. thinking about libraries. Wow, that's interesting. <laughs> I think that's, that sounds so much better than putting radio. Yeah, instead of... Yeah. Instead of music, there was a, a band that played here in town at the spot who was on Vice News talking about the noise scene in Indonesia. They just done a tour there and um, just uh, he was talking about how the uh, there's all these one man bands that do noise on the street. It's called noise bombing and they they just play right out on the street pretty much to like fight back against the noise of the city and the, the chaos around them. So it's, it's a different way than noise canceling with white noise and happy sounds. These guys are out using noise in a different way. Just on a final note, um, we want to talk a little bit about the, the projects that we're going to have available on the website. So look on the website, we're going to have a link to the Bloomington Project, Aurora Almanac. Esteban, if you would talk a little bit about that, what what they'll find with that link. Um, Yes, so there is a sheet of paper that you can print at home and um, you can draw your own geometry. There's like some slides too that uh, guide you through the the idea of the project. I'm gonna be holding some public workshops too. So uh, where I will talk about it, but you can also just make a drawing and take a picture of your drawing and you can upload it to the website. There's a big button that says share your design uh, with your, it should be contained in a square. And that's pretty much it. Like you just use the format and draw it and upload. Great. Yeah, we'll have that link below this podcast. And then Erin has generously offered to teach us all a little bit about um, Soundscape 
through free software. Aaron, can you talk a little bit about it? Yeah, um, I'll be using, uh, it'll be a pure data uh, patch and I'll, I'll uh, walk you through how to create the patch. It'll be a note generator, like a sequencer and using probability to influence what notes play or don't play and what timing. And yeah, it's free software too. It's really cool. We're, we're very thankful for, uh, uh, for you to give, give us this, this opportunity to like get together, like reflect about our work and, and like also like share like with the community. Oh, thank you so much for joining us. We're very grateful you took the time to talk with us. We learned a lot about the local art and music scene, your influences, sound and visuals as data. And uh, we really look forward to seeing your future work. So thank you again. 